0: Chapter 11 of the House of the Seven Gables. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 11 The Arched Window. From the inertness, or what we may term the vegetative character, of his ordinary mood. Clifford would perhaps have been content to spend one day after another interminably, or, at least, throughout the summer time, in just the kind of life described in the preceding pages. Fancying, however, that it might be for his benefit occasionally to diversify the scene, Phoebe sometimes suggested that he should look out upon the life of the street. For this purpose, they used to mount the staircase together to the second story of the house, where, at the termination of a wide entry, there was an arched window, of uncommonly large dimensions, shaded by a pair of curtains. It opened above the porch, where there had formerly been a balcony, the balustrade of which had long since gone to decay and been removed. At this arched window, throwing it open, but keeping himself in comparative obscurity by means of the curtain, Clifford had an opportunity of witnessing such a portion of the great world's movement as might be supposed to roll through one of the retired streets of a not very populous city. But he and Phoebe made a sight as well worth seeing as any that the city could exhibit. The pale, grey, childish, aged, melancholy, yet often simply cheerful, and sometimes delicately intelligent aspect of Clifford, peering from behind the faded crimson of the curtain, watching the monotony of everyday occurrences with a kind of inconsequential interest and earnestness, and, at every petty throb of his sensibility, turning for sympathy to the eyes of the bright young girl. If once he were fairly seated at the window, even Pinchon Street would hardly be so dull and lonely but that, somewhere or other along its extent, Clifford might discover matter to occupy his eye, and titillate, if not engross, his observation." Things familiar to the youngest child that had begun its outlook at existence seemed strange to him. A cab, an omnibus with its populous interior, dropping here and there a passenger, and picking up another, and thus typifying that vast rolling vehicle, the world, the end of whose journey is everywhere and nowhere. These objects he followed eagerly with his eyes, but forgot them before the dust raised by the horses and wheels had settled along their track. As regarded novelties, among which cabs and omnibuses were to be reckoned, his mind appeared to have lost its proper gripe and retentiveness. Twice or thrice, for example, during the sunny hours of the day, a water-cart went along by the Pinchon house, leaving a broad wake of moistened earth, instead of the white dust that had risen at a lady's lightest footfall. It was like a summer shower which the city authorities had caught and tamed, and compelled it into the commonest routine of their convenience with the water-cart clifford could never grow familiar it always affected him with just the same surprise as at first his mind took an apparently sharp impression from it but lost the recollection of this perambulatory shower before its next reappearance as completely as did the street itself along which the heat so quickly strewed white dust again It was the same with the railroad. Clifford could hear the obstreperous howl of the steam-devil, and, by leaning a little way from the arched window, could catch a glimpse of the trains of cars flashing a brief transit across the extremity of the street. The idea of terrible energy thus forced upon him was new at every recurrence, and seemed to affect him as disagreeably, and with almost as much surprise, the hundredth time as the first. Nothing gives a sadder sense of decay than this loss or suspension of the power to deal with unaccustomed things, and to keep up with the swiftness of the passing moment. It can merely be a suspended animation, for, were the power actually to perish, there would be little use of immortality. We are less than ghosts for the time being, whenever this calamity befalls us. Clifford was indeed the most inveterate of conservatives. All the antique fashions of the street were dear to him, even such as were characterized by a rudeness that would naturally have annoyed his fastidious senses. He loved the old rumbling and jolting carts, the former track of which he still found in his long-buried remembrance, as the observer of to-day finds the wheel-tracks of ancient vehicles in Herculaneum, The butcher's cart, with its snowy canopy, was an acceptable object. So was the fish cart, heralded by its horn. So likewise was the countryman's cart of vegetables, plodding from door to door, with long pauses of the patient horse, while his owner drove a trade in turnips, carrots, summer squashes, string beans, green peas, and new potatoes, with half the housewives of the neighborhood. The baker's cart, with the harsh music of its bells, had a pleasant effect on Clifford, because, as few things else did, it jingled the very dissonance of yore. One afternoon a scissor-grinder chanced to set his wheel a-going under the pinch-on elm, and just in front of the arched window. Children came running with their mother's scissors, or the carving-knife, or the paternal razor, or anything else that lacked an edge, except, indeed, poor Clifford's wits, that the grinder might apply the article to his magic wheel and give it back as good as new. Round went the busily revolving machinery, kept in motion by the scissor-grinder's foot, and wore away the hard steel against the hard stone, whence issued an intense and spiteful prolongation of a hiss as fierce as those emitted by Satan and his compeers in pandemonium though squeezed into smaller compass it was an ugly little venomous serpent of a noise as ever did petty violence to human ears but clifford listened with rapturous delight the sound however disagreeable had very brisk life in it and together with the circle of curious children watching the revolutions of the wheel appeared to give him a more vivid sense of active bustling and sunshiny existence than he had attained in almost any other way. Nevertheless, its charm lay chiefly in the past, for the scissor-grinder's wheel had hissed in his childish ear. He sometimes made doleful complaint that there were no stage-coaches nowadays, and he asked in an injured tone what had become of all those old square-topped chaises with wings sticking out on either side that used to be drawn by a plough-horse, and driven by a farmer's wife and daughter, peddling wartleberries and blackberries about the town. Their disappearance made him doubt, he said, whether the berries had not left off growing in the broad pastures and along the shady country lanes. But anything that appealed to the sense of beauty, in however humble a way, did not require to be recommended by these old associations. This was observable when one of those Italian boys, who are rather a modern feature of our streets, came along with his barrel-organ, and stopped under the wide and cool shadows of the elm. With his quick professional eye he took note of the two faces watching him from the arched window, and, opening his instrument, began to scatter its melodies abroad. He had a monkey on his shoulder, dressed in a highland plaid, and, to complete the sum of splendid attractions wherewith he presented himself to the public. There was a company of little figures, whose sphere and habitation was in the mahogany case of his organ, and whose principle of life was the music which the Italian made it his business to grind out. In all their variety of occupation—the cobbler, the blacksmith, the soldier, the lady with her fan, the toper with his bottle, the milkmaid sitting by her cow this fortunate little society might truly be said to enjoy a harmonious existence, and to make life literally a dance. The Italian turned to crank, and, behold, every one of these small individuals started into the most curious vivacity. The cobbler wrought upon a shoe. The blacksmith hammered his iron. The soldier waved his glittering blade. The lady raised a tiny breeze with her fan. The jolly toper swigged lustily at his bottle. A scholar opened his book with eager thirst for knowledge, and turned his head to and fro along the page. The milkmaid energetically drained her cow, and a miser counted gold into his strong-box, all at the same turning of a crank. Yes, and moved by the self-same impulse, a lover saluted his mistress on her lips. Possibly some cynic, at once merry and bitter, had desired to signify in this pantomimic scene, that we mortals, whatever our business or amusement, however serious, however trifling, all dance to one identical tune, and, in spite of our ridiculous activity, bring nothing finally to pass. For the most remarkable aspect of the affair was that, at the cessation of the music, everybody was petrified at once, from the most extravagant life into a dead torpor. Neither was the cobbler's shoe finished, nor the blacksmith's iron shaped out, nor was there a drop less of brandy in the toper's bottle, nor a drop more of milk in the milkmaid's pail, nor one additional coin in the miser's strong-box, nor was the scholar a page deeper in his book. All were precisely in the same condition as before they made themselves so ridiculous by their haste to toil to enjoy, to accumulate gold, and to become wise. Saddest of all, moreover, the lover was none the happier for the maiden's granted kiss. But, rather than swallow this last too acrid ingredient, we reject the whole moral of the show. The monkey, meanwhile, with thick tail curling out into preposterous prolixity from beneath his tartans, took his station at the Italian's feet he turned a wrinkled and abominable little visage to every passer-by, and to the circle of children that soon gathered round, and to Hepzibah's shop-door, and upward to the arched window, whence Phoebe and Clifford were looking down. Every moment, also, he took off his highland bonnet, and performed a bow and scrape. Sometimes, moreover, he made personal application to individuals, holding out his small black palm, and otherwise plainly signifying his excessive desire for whatever filthy lucre might happen to be in anybody's pocket, the mean and low, yet strangely manlike expression of his wilted countenance, the prying and crafty glance that showed him ready to gripe at every miserable advantage, his enormous tail, too enormous to be decently concealed under his gabardine, and the deviltry of nature which it betokened. Take this monkey just as he was, in short, and you could desire no better image of the mammon of copper coin, symbolizing the grossest form of the love of money. Neither was there any possibility of satisfying the covetous little devil. Phoebe threw down a whole handful of cents, which he picked up with joyless eagerness, handed them over to the Italian for safekeeping, and immediately recommenced a series of pantomimic petitions for more. Doubtless, more than one New Englander. Or let him be of what country he might, it is as likely to be the case. Passed by, and threw a look at the monkey, and went on, without imagining how nearly his own moral condition was here exemplified. Clifford, however, was a being of another order. He had taken childish delight in the music, and smiled, too, at the figures which it set in motion. But— After looking a while at the long-tailed imp, he was so shocked by his horrible ugliness, spiritual as well as physical, that he actually began to shed tears, a weakness which men of merely delicate endowments, and destitute of the fiercer, deeper, and more tragic power of laughter, can hardly avoid when the worst and meanest aspect of life happens to be presented to them. Pinchon Street was sometimes enlivened by spectacles of more imposing pretensions than the above, and which brought the multitude along with them. With a shivering repugnance at the idea of personal contact with the world, a powerful impulse still seized on Clifford, whenever the rush and roar of the human tide grew strongly audible to him. This was made evident one day, when a political procession, with hundreds of flaunting banners, and drums, fifes, clarions, and cymbals, reverberating between the rows of buildings, marched all through town and trailed its length of trampling footsteps and most infrequent uproar past the ordinarily quiet House of the Seven Gables. As a mere object of sight, nothing is more deficient in picturesque features than a procession seen in its passage through narrow streets. The spectator feels it to be fool's play when he can distinguish the tedious commonplace of each man's visage, with the perspiration and weary self-importance on it, and the very cut of his pantaloons, and the stiffness or laxity of his shirt-collar, and the dust on the back of his black coat. In order to become majestic, it should be viewed from some vantage point, as it rolls its slow and long array through the centre of a wide plain, or the stateliest public square of a city. For then, by its remoteness, it melts all the petty personalities of which it is made up, into one broad mass of existence, one great life, one collected body of mankind, with a vast, homogeneous spirit animating it. But, on the other hand, if an impressible person, standing alone over the brink of one of these processions, should behold it, not in its atoms, but in its aggregate, as a mighty river of life, massive in its tide and black with mystery, and, out of its depths, calling to the kindred depth within him, then the contiguity would add to the effect. It might so fascinate him that he would hardly be restrained from plunging into the surging stream of human sympathies. So it proved with Clifford. He shuddered. He grew pale." He threw an appealing look at Hepzibah and Phoebe, who were with him at the window. They comprehended nothing of his emotions and supposed him merely disturbed by the unaccustomed tumult. At last, with tremulous limbs, he started up, set his foot on the window-sill, and in an instant more, he would have been in the unguarded balcony, as it was the whole procession might have seen him- a wild, haggard figure. His grey locks floating in the wind that waved their banners, a lonely being, estranged from his race, but now feeling himself man again, by virtue of the irrepressible instinct that possessed him. Had Clifford attained the balcony, he would probably have leaped into the street, but whether impelled by the species of terror that sometimes urges its victim over the very precipice which he shrinks from, or by a natural magnetism, tending towards the great centre of humanity, it were not easy to decide. Both impulses might have wrought on him at once. But his companions, affrighted by his gesture, which was that of a man hurried away in spite of himself, seized Clifford's garment and held him back. Hephzibah shrieked. Phoebe, to whom all extravagance was a horror, burst into sobs and tears." "'Clifford! Clifford! Are you crazy?' cried his sister. "'I hardly know, Hepzibah,' said Clifford, drawing a long breath. "'Fear nothing. It is over now. But had I taken that plunge and survived it, methinks it would have made me another man.' Possibly, in some sense, Clifford may have been right. He needed a shock— or perhaps he required to take a deep, deep plunge into the ocean of human life, and to sink down and be covered by its profoundness, and then to emerge sobered, invigorated, restored to the world and to himself. Perhaps again he required nothing less than the great final remedy—death. A similar yearning to renew the broken links of brotherhood with his kind sometimes showed itself in a milder form— and once it was made beautiful by the religion that lay even deeper than itself. In the incident now to be sketched, there was a touching recognition, on Clifford's part, of God's care and love towards him, towards this poor forsaken man, who, if any mortal could, might have been pardoned for regarding himself as thrown aside, forgotten, and left to be the sport of some fiend whose playfulness was an ecstasy of mischief. It was the Sabbath morning, one of those bright, calm Sabbaths, with its own hallowed atmosphere, when heaven seems to diffuse itself over the earth's face in a solemn smile, no less sweet than solemn. On such a Sabbath morn, were we pure enough to be its medium, we should be conscious of the earth's natural worship ascending through our frames, on whatever spot of ground we stood, the church bells, with various tones, but all in harmony, were calling out and responding to one another. It is the Sabbath! The Sabbath! Yea, the Sabbath! And over the whole city the bells scattered the blessed sounds, now slowly, now with livelier joy. Now one bell alone, now all the bells together, crying earnestly, It is the Sabbath! and flinging their accents afar off, to melt into the air and pervade it with the holy word. The air, with God's sweetest and tenderest sunshine in it, was meat for mankind to breathe into their hearts, and send it forth again as the utterance of prayer. Clifford sat at the window with Hephzibah, watching the neighbours as they stepped into the street. All of them, however unspiritual on other days, were transfigured by the Sabbath influence, so that their very garments, whether it were an old man's decent coat, well brushed for the thousandth time, or a little boy's first sack and trousers, finished yesterday by his mother's needle, had somewhat of the quality of ascension robes. Forth, likewise, from the portal of the old house, stepped Phoebe, putting up her small green sunshade and throwing upward a glance and smile of parting kindness to the faces at the arched window. In her aspect there was a familiar gladness, and a holiness that you could play with, and yet reverence it as much as ever. She was like a prayer, offered up in the homeliest beauty of one's mother tongue. Fresh was Phoebe, moreover, and airy and sweet in her apparel, as if nothing that she wore, neither her gown, nor her small straw bonnet, nor her little kerchief, any more than her snowy stockings, had ever been put on before. Or, if worn, were all the fresher for it, and with a fragrance as if they had lain among the rosebuds. The girl waved her hand to Hepzibah and Clifford, and went up the street, a religion in herself, warm, simple, true, with a substance that could walk on earth, and a spirit that was capable of heaven. "'Hepzibah,' asked Clifford, after watching Phoebe to the corner, "'do you never go to church?' "'No, Clifford,' she replied. "'Not these many, many years.' "'Were I to be there,' he rejoined, "'it seems to me that I could pray once more, when so many human souls were praying all around me. She looked into Clifford's face, and beheld there a soft, natural effusion, for his heart gushed out, as it were, and ran over at his eyes, in delightful reverence for God, and kindly affection for his human brethren. The emotion communicated itself to Hephzibah. She yearned to take him by the hand and go and kneel down, they two together, both so long separate from the world. And as she now recognized— scarcely friends with him above, to kneel down among the people, and be reconciled to God and man at once. Dear brother, said she earnestly, let us go. We belong nowhere. We have not a foot of space in any church to kneel upon. But let us go to some place of worship, even if we stand in the broad aisle. Poor and forsaken as we are, some pew-door will be opened to us." So Hepzibah and her brother made themselves ready, as ready as they could in the best of their old-fashioned garments, which had hung on pegs or been laid away in trunks, so long that the dampness and mouldy smell of the past was on them, made themselves ready, in their faded bettermost, to go to church. They descended the staircase together, gaunt, sallow Hepzibah, and pale, emaciated, age-stricken Clifford. They pulled open the front door and stepped across the threshold, and felt, both of them, as if they were standing in the presence of the whole world, and with mankind's great and terrible eye on them alone. The eye of their father seemed to be withdrawn, and gave them no encouragement. The warm, sunny air of the street made them shiver. Their hearts quaked within them at the idea of taking one step farther. "'It cannot be, Hepzibah!' "'It is too late,' said Clifford, with deep sadness. "'We are ghosts. We have no right among human beings, no right anywhere but in this old house, which has a curse on it, and which, therefore, we are doomed to haunt. And besides,' he continued, with a fastidious sensibility, inalienably characteristic of the man, "'it would not be fit nor beautiful to go.' It is an ugly thought that I should be frightful to my fellow-beings, and that children would cling to their mother's gowns at sight of me. They shrank back into the dusky passageway and closed the door. But, going up the staircase again, they found the whole interior of the house tenfold more dismal, and the air closer and heavier, for the glimpse and breath of freedom which they had just snatched. They could not flee— their jailer had but left the door ajar in mockery, and stood behind it to watch them stealing out. At the threshold, they felt his pitiless gripe upon them. For what other dungeon is so dark as one's own heart? What jailer so inexorable as one's self? But it would be no fair picture of Clifford's state of mind were we to represent him as continually or prevailingly wretched. On the contrary— There was no other man in the city, we are bold to affirm, of so much as half his years, who enjoyed so many lightsome and griefless moments as himself. He had no burden of care upon him. There were none of those questions and contingencies with a future, to be settled, which wear away all other lives, and render them not worth having by the very process of providing for their support. In this respect, he was a child." a child for the whole term of his existence, be it long or short. Indeed, his life seemed to be standing still at a period little in advance of childhood, and to cluster all his reminiscences about that epoch, just as, after the torpor of a heavy blow, the sufferer's reviving consciousness goes back to a moment considerably behind the accident that stupefied him. He sometimes told Phoebe and Hepsibah his dreams, in which he invariably played the part of a child, or a very young man. So vivid were they, in his relation of them, that he once held a dispute with his sister as to the particular figure or print of a chintz morning-dress which he had seen their mother wear, in the dream of the preceding night. Hepsiba, piquing herself on a woman's accuracy in such matters, held it to be slightly different from what Clifford described, but producing the very gown from an old trunk, it proved to be identical with his remembrance of it. Had Clifford, every time that he emerged out of dreams so lifelike, undergone the torture of transformation from a boy into an old and broken man, the daily recurrence of the shock would have been too much to bear. It would have caused an acute agony to thrill from the morning twilight— All the day through until bedtime, and even then would have mingled a dull, inscrutable pain and pallid hue of misfortune with the visionary bloom and adolescence of his slumber. But the nightly moonshine interwove itself with the morning mist, and enveloped him as in a robe, which he hugged about his person, and seldom let realities pierce through. He was not often quite awake, but slept open eyed and perhaps fancied himself most dreaming then. Thus, lingering always so near his childhood, he had sympathies with children, and kept his heart the fresher thereby, like a reservoir into which rivulets were pouring not far from the fountain-head. Though prevented, by a subtle sense of propriety, from desiring to associate with them, he loved few things better than to look out of the arched window, and see a little girl driving her hoop along the sidewalk, or schoolboys at a game of ball. Their voices, also, were very pleasant to him, heard at a distance, all swarming and intermingling together as flies do in a sunny room. Clifford would, doubtless, have been glad to share their sports. One afternoon he was seized with an irresistible desire to blow soap-bubbles, an amusement, as Hepzibah told Phoebe apart that had been a favourite one with her brother when they were both children. Behold him, therefore, at the arched window, with an earthen pipe in his mouth. Behold him, with his grey hair and a wan, unreal smile over his countenance, where still hovered a beautiful grace, which his worst enemy must have acknowledged to be spiritual and immortal, since it had survived so long. Behold him, scattering airy spheres abroad from the window into the street." Little impalpable worlds were those soap-bubbles, with the big world depicted in hues bright as imagination on the nothing of their surface. It was curious to see how the passers-by regarded these brilliant fantasies as they came floating down, and made the dull atmosphere imaginative about them. Some stopped to gaze, and perhaps carried a pleasant recollection of the bubbles onward as far as the street-corner. Some looked angrily upward, as if poor Clifford wronged them by setting an image of beauty afloat so near their dusty pathway. A great many put out their fingers or their walking-sticks to touch withal, and were perversely gratified, no doubt, when the bubble, with all its pictured earth and sky seen, vanished as if it had never been. At last, just as an elderly gentleman of very dignified presence happened to be passing, A large bubble sailed majestically down, and burst right against his nose. He looked up, at first with a stern, keen glance, which penetrated at once into the obscurity behind the arched window, then with a smile which might be conceived as diffusing a dog-day sultriness for the space of several yards about him. "'Ah-ha! Cousin Clifford!' cried Judge Pinchon. "'What? Still blowing soap-bubbles?' The tone seemed as if he meant to be kind and soothing, but yet had a bitterness of sarcasm in it. As for Clifford, an absolute palsy of fear came over him. Apart from any definite cause of dread which his past experience might have given him, he felt that native and original horror of the excellent judge, which is proper to a weak, delicate, and apprehensive character in the presence of massive strength. Strength is incomprehensible by weakness, and therefore the more terrible. There is no greater bugbear than a strong-willed relative in the circle of his own connections. End of chapter